Open your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're going to look at verses 21 through 26 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Anger management is big business in America. I didn't get any uh, specific figures. I don't know if anybody's keeping them, but I know that it is the subject of thousands of workshops, videos, and literature. Uh, according to a June 2006 article in something called New Scientist, here's a quote, Explosive outbursts of uncontrollable rage may affect more people than previously thought, a new study suggests. More than 7% of people in the U.S. have experienced, quote, intermittent explosive disorder, IED, at some point in their lives, says Ron Kessler of the Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, who led the study. This means they will respond to certain situations with inappropriate levels of anger, for example, resulting in road rage or irrational violent acts such as throwing a television out of a window during an argument with a spouse or parent. I should have watched the news this morning because I guess Ryan O'Neill had an argument with his adult son that he had to call 911 over because he assaulted him. They're playing the 911 tape, but I had to leave. So, uh, IED, right there at the O'Neill house. Now, the scribes and Pharisees assumed you would be angry. Uh, that's a good assumption because uh, we're obviously prone to that in our flesh. But for them, as long as you didn't kill anybody, they felt you were still keeping the law. You could get mad, insult someone, even sue them and then just go about your business, feeling righteous because you hadn't committed assault or murder. Uh, and obviously, it's not as serious to uh, insult somebody as to murder them, uh, but you know that, that's, that much is clear. But Jesus is going to give us some insight as to what this means spiritually. He discussed anger in the context of us needing a superior righteousness than that of the most religious among us. Remember our last study and the things leading up to this are that our righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so he begins to talk about particular instances of that, like the command, thou shalt not murder. Um, you need to have a higher standard of righteousness than they were recommending. Keeping your anger under control so that you don't actually murder somebody might be good, but it is not righteous as far as Jesus is concerned. It's not, you can't say you're righteous because you didn't kill anybody if there are other attitudes going on in your heart. And so he says in verse 21, you've heard it was said to those of old, 
you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of, of the judgment. When he says you've heard it said, it's a reminder that the people depended on the interpretation of the law by their leaders. Uh, they, um, it wasn't that they couldn't read for themselves or listen for themselves, but uh, this was more of a commentary kind of a thing. You know, it's like, well, well, what does this really mean? You know, thou shalt not murder. How do we interpret that? And and so this kind of body of thought had grown up around that, and and this is what everybody believed based on teaching. Um, we can fall into that as well. I. Uh, as a as a part of my job description, I you know in teaching I do a lot of reading, uh, and the more reading you do, the more you begin to understand that everybody influences everybody else in in what they think about things, and um, then I and we're all this way. I mean, everybody is. I've I've often said this, and it's true. We're we're all subject to a lot of influence. Um, I'm on a list server, an internet list server with about 300 other pastors, and they'll say, well, what do you guys think about this? And then, uh, you know, different guys will write. And, and what I think is happening, especially if you're younger, you're looking for a point of view to adopt because you, you want to know what, if what you're doing is right. Not righteous, the, you know, but is that right? What, what do they do at Calvary Costa Mesa? What is Calvary of Fort Lauderdale doing, you know, and so it's a natural thing even within our own system of churches to think, well, this is a big successful church. What do they think about that subject? What would they do? Uh, and, and so you can easily kind of adopt your whole philosophy of ministry, really, and your way of doing things and even your way of thinking based on what others have said. You've heard that it was said, you know, and a lot of times that when guys are gently but genuinely arguing somebody will pull out the, co we call it the Costa Mesa card, you know, and they'll say, well, Chuck does this, or Chuck wouldn't allow this. And then it's like, okay, well, that's it then. You know, if Chuck Smith won't do it, then how can you do it, you know? And, and uh, I remember one time there was a, I was part of an argument. Uh, they were talking about marriage and adultery and remarriage and that whole subject. And one of the guys who I really like, really respect him, he started talking about, a, um, I wish I could. Uh, it was it was more of a you hadn't actually committed adultery, but because it, the bottom line was he was suggesting that adultery could include more than just physical adultery, and 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 therefore he was giving people the grounds for divorce because they you know I mean where I would say hey have you know is there adultery or do you have ground you know has there been and, and somebody say, well, no, but there's this. And I would say, well, then you don't have grounds on that level for divorce. And he was kind of opening up that door like, well, you know, but the heart and all. Finally, we were talking back and forth. And finally, a, a guy who was an assistant to Chuck at the time, Roger Wing, he wrote and he said, this is our position at Costa Mesa. And then that was it. That was the end of the discussion, you know. It was like, you know, and I thought, yeah, see. Um, but, but that's the kind of thing. So we do this today. I mean, you, a lot of times we read this stuff and we think, oh, yeah, those guys were losers. You know, we would never do that. But uh, quite honestly, people do this today. They, they have their favorite Bible teacher and, and they're always looking for uh, a perspective. And I'm not saying that we don't agree, but, I mean, we all have to come to our own conclusion on these things. And that's why Paul... Uh, you know, or not so much Paul, but when they heard Paul, the Bereans went and they said, well, we're going to check this out for ourselves, see what we think about this, you know. And um, yeah, that's a good thing to do. <clears throat> so Jesus is not reinterpreting the law, though. 
he's giving the original t intent of it and the correct interpretation of it. So he's, he said, this is, this is what it's come to. This is how you, the law is being interpreted. I, he goes, I'm going to tell you what it really means. Uh, which is a big statement, really. When I mean, for somebody to get up and say, you know, for centuries, this is how others have interpreted God's law. I'm going to tell you what the law really means, just all by myself, with no authority behind me. Uh, obviously, we know that he was the son of God, and uh, he was there at the writing of the law and way before that, and so he could do this, but it's, a, it's an incredible statement, really. Um, it'd be like, well, a lot of guys get up in churches and they say, well, this is what you've been taught for centuries, but this is what I'm telling, and usually it's a heresy. You know, usually it's a false teaching. Usually it's some kind of weird thing. If I got up on a Sunday morning and I said, hey, all, everyone is wrong except me. You know, this is, this is what this really means. Then uh, you should find another church. <laughs> so the Jews of Jesus' time knew that murder was forbidden by God and that the murderer was liable to punishment. This was true before the giving of the law back in Genesis 9 and it was later incorporated into the law in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, just in passing... Uh, you know, God, uh, regardless what society thinks, God thinks the death penalty is a good thing. Um, you know, and we don't relish it, we're not excited about it, but God, um, it, 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 the death, it's kind of like spanking. You don't know what spanking, how spanking really works, you know. I mean, God says it will drive foolishness out of the heart of a child, so how does paddling your child with a board have anything to do with the the spiritual foolishness, I mean, there's no real direct connection. You can't test for it, uh, and so, but you can see the result of it. And now, the death penalty, we can see a little bit, but God says, hey, if I value life so much that if you take it, I take yours. And, and, it, and some people, it's like, well, if you value life so much, why would you take another life? You know, that kind of, but God says, no, that's not the way it works. I value Kenny's life, so when Chris kills him, Chris has to die. And stuff, and, and that's just part of the fabric of, of what God did. Uh, well, I'm looking at them. Could have been you guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're a, anybody to my left. But, uh, <laughs> well, you've got a pack like that, right? Mallet, BB gun, you know, pepper spray. So, anyway, so that's just part of the thing. I was reading that in, uh, in uh, Leviticus in our daily reading uh, this past week, too, about different things that were worthy of capital punishment, things that um, that still should be worthy of capital punishment. The scribes and Pharisees taught that anger short of murder was to be expected, which it is. Uh, insults, and, insults and lawsuits were not discouraged by them, however, and they, they um, you know, as I said, as long as you didn't do assault and murder, you were okay, you could be righteous. Verse 22, Jesus says, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Again, when Jesus said, but I say to you, he's assuming authority to teach them the true meaning of the law that was not dependent upon any prior tradition. It rested upon who he was as the Son of God, uh, speaking for God. He then traces the act of murder to its source and warns against three forms of unrighteous anger. Jesus first states the case of a person who is angry with his brother without a cause. One accused of this attitude would be in danger of the judgment. Uh, Jesus seems to be saying that even this lower level of anger should be something that the courts could condemn you for. They didn't, but they should. And so that, that's my sense of it. When he says, 
you are in danger of the judgment, you should have the same attitude of condemnation or conviction at least that, wow, I shouldn't even feel this way towards that person for whatever reason. Uh, and so angry without a cause. The person hasn't really done anything to you. I think road rage would fit into this because a lot, some cases, I mean, I've cut people off. I've pulled out in front of people. I've done, I mean, you're driving, you know, you make, you're, it's, it's just part of uh, what goes on. You, you know, there's peripheral vision. There's all these issues going on. And, and for me to get all torqued because somebody pulled out in front of me, uh, when I've done that, I mean, it's, you know, it's not a good thing, uh, especially if an accident ensues. But uh, there's really, uh, in, a, in a sense, there's, in some cases, there's no cause for it. You know, and so uh, there's other, obviously, other angry without a cause things. You should feel like that should touch your conscience and say, oh, I, I really, you know, this is part of my flesh. I shouldn't really even be feeling this way. Uh, even more serious is the sin of actually insulting someone. In Jesus' day, people used the word raka, uh, apparently, uh, and depending on who you read, it, it has different meanings. It, it seems to mean empty one or like... I think years ago we would call people retard, uh, which I got in trouble for uh, as an adult not, not too long ago. <coughs> anyway, I, well, actually, I used the word retarded, and, and it, was, it was in your kindergarten class, I think, and I said something was retarded, and Mrs. Bowlby took me aside and said, we don't use that word in our class. I said, okay, you know. Anyway, it was still retarded, but I didn't say a person was retarded, but okay. Even back then, political correctness was starting to rear its ugly head, you know. Uh, so whatever raka means, it means something like you retard. Uh, <laughs> those who use this insult were in danger of the council. Now, again, my understanding is that uh, he's talking about the council, uh, the high council of, of uh, Israel, the Sanhedrin. Uh, I don't think anybody was being brought up on charges of Rakaism, uh, but he was giving them the idea that if you call people a retard, you should think, wow, they're going to drag me in front of the Sanhedrin, you know, because everybody should have such a sensitivity to that kind of uh, situation. Finally, to call someone a fool is the third form of unrighteous anger that Jesus condemns. Here the word fool means more than just a, a dunce or a retard. Uh, it's, uh, this would be the equivalent of us asking God to damn someone, you know, where we would use that, that phrase, which we hear every day, most of you out in the work-a-day world, just as a kind of an epitaph, whether people mean it or not, but this is the idea. And so that, this is a much, it's not just a different insult, it's to the level of actually wanting God to send somebody to hell, you know, and I know most people who use uh, that don't believe that, but that's where it came from. That's why swearing is such a, just cussing and swearing is so empty because it doesn't even mean anything. You know, I mean, if you, I remember years ago reading C.S. Lewis and he talked about this for some reason about language and he said, he said, you know, if you're going to swear, reserve it for times when it's appropriate. 
And I mean, he was being facetious, of course, but I mean, if you're always using cuss words just in, as you're, then what happens when you do hit your thumb with a hammer? What do you say then, you know, or when something bad happens? And, and he was just pointing out the, the silliness of, of our use of language. But this was a very serious thing where you would actually say that and mean that. Uh, Jesus says that the one who utters such a curse is in danger of hell, or well, actually hell fire. And this would be a reference to uh, what was called the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. The bodies of executed criminals were thrown into their uh, burning dump outside of Jerusalem, and, and it became a figure of the fires of hell that never were quenched. Uh, so they, that's, that's what they did with their garbage back then. Uh, they weren't concerned too much about global warming. <laughs> It wasn't an inconvenient truth then. And uh, so they had this garbage dump that was on fire all the time and they just throw people in there and it, it obviously became a, a kind of a, uh, a picture of what hell would be like, only of course hell is much worse. So there's no mistaking the severity of the Savior's words. He teaches that anger contains the seeds of murder, that abusive language contains the spirit of murder and that cursing implies a desire to murder or to see somebody dead. The progressive heightening of the crimes demands the progressive uh, judgment and punishment. Uh, and, and so he's, he's really kind of blowing their minds. Jesus' standard was much higher than anything they had heard before. But it makes sense, really, if you step back because you're dealing with God whose standards are high and perfect and who is concerned about your heart, not just your outward activities. And this is the major point of this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, you were really dealing with the heart and the attitudes there. And so don't think that any law, even God's law, is going to help you to achieve a cleanliness or a purity of heart. All it does is expose what a sinner you are and show you your need for a Savior. Uh, the Lord shows it is silly to try to cover your anger with religious ritual when He says, therefore, verse 23, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. The point of this really is that outward religious ritual cannot cover the condition of the heart. So you've got all these things churning in your heart. Uh, you know, I hate Rhett. I'll, look, you know, I'll use you since you seem upset that you weren't included. So I hate Rhett, and I, you know, I have all these attitudes. And then I think, well, I'll just go and make my offering and, and because my attitude towards red has nothing to do with my worship and my love of God. Uh, and, and of course, uh, again, I'm sure that we all do this all the time in different areas, not so much hating other people, but just hiding sin, having difficulties at home, whatever it might be uh, that, that we're dealing with where we split our what we would consider our religious life from our real life and... Um, you know, the Lord is just pointing out that outward religious ritual can't cover the condition of the heart. The Lord can't be pleased with it. And so you should deal with things that are wrong in your life when the Lord shows you. Uh, in this case, uh, take care of, of the problem with your brother. Only then will your gift, and in our case, our worship, be acceptable. We're not really, uh, you know, our worship is our, ourselves on the altar uh, before the Lord. And so the Lord says, hey, before you come to me, deal with these issues. You may have to go to somebody, uh, you may not, you know. Uh, I, you know. I know a lot of pastors like to make jokes about how many arguments break out on Sunday morning before church, you know, and on the way to church, you know, husbands and wives arguing and yelling at their kids and stuff. Then you come into church and you're all happy. And I'd rather you come to church and act happy 
uh, and maybe God will convict you and then everything will be fine. Now, it, it's not that you can't ever go to church. You know, some people would never go to church then. They'd say, well, I'd say, well, you know, the elders or deacons would call and say, hey, we haven't seen you for a while. What's up? And they go, well, I'm, I'm stuck in Matthew 5, 23 and 4. Every time I try and come to church, my wife and I argue and we end up, uh, you know, having church at home and stuff. So, you know, I, you can get really, the, what's fun about this, or, or funny in a weird way about this, you can get very legalistic about this where Jesus is trying to not be legalistic. He's trying to say, look, the law is a bigger thing. It's an internal thing. Get with the program. And then people read this and, and I mean, I've got... Uh, even Jay Adams, I've got some books by him that I, really, I appreciate the guy and he's a great writer and counselor and all, but you know, he's got like a system for how you have to deal with this. You know? So you realize this, don't go to church, you go here, you set up an appointment you know, and all this kind of stuff. And you know, Some of us would never get anything done. Uh, and now, God shows you something, yes, you need to deal with it. Uh, the idea is, is that overall you're not going to cover it by being religious. Uh, you're going to have to be real with God. Um, we're to maintain unity among ourselves. We're to attempt to live peaceable, uh, peace, peacefully excuse me, among unbelievers. That's the spirit of the law that Jesus is dissecting. So generally speaking, uh, we're trying to be at peace with all men as much as is possible and among ourselves to maintain the unity that God has already given us. We don't create the unity. We have it. You know, as soon as you're born again, you're part of the Christian community uh, and you have a unity with every other Christian, then it fails because of our flesh and things that, encounters that we have so we need to work to maintain that and make sure that we have good relationships jesus further describes the right heart in verses 25 and 26 uh, it's an attitude of peace and reconciliation he says even to the point of sometimes you'll just allow yourself to be wronged uh, because it's right to do that it says in verse 25 agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison surely i say to you you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. The truth is you never know what might happen if you pursue your anger by filing a lawsuit against someone or them against you. The judge might rule against you. Uh, it's, you know, in, in some of these high-profile cases in our own nation the last few years, uh, everybody wins in, uh, you know, in the main court and then they lose in civil court. You know? so, so OJ's... Uh, acquitted, uh, but then he's found guilty in you know uh, in the civil lawsuit, uh, and and so no one's so you just never know what's going to happen uh, in in court. People always think they have a great case. Uh, for one thing, you don't understand the law. I don't understand the law. I mean, I watch these trials and I think, what are you talking about? What what is what just happened? And then you you know we because we don't know the law and the inner you hear about confessions that are not allowed and motions that pass and don't pass and you know and then the jury comes out and they say well if I had known that you know the gun was found in his hand uh, you know uh, I would have that would have changed everything uh, but instead you know they had to throw it out for some reason and i understand i'm not i'm not degrading our legal system i mean i don't want to be in iran don't get me wrong you know i think it's fantastic but you just don't know what's going to happen when you go to court and yet when you talk to people they think oh yeah i've got a solid case the judge has to rule for me well of course the other person thinks that too and sometimes you you watch these news magazines you know and they have the first half is like you know obviously the husband couldn't have done it you know like, okay Right. That guy's innocent. And then, but, 
you know, and then you've got, wow, that guy's guilty, you know, and stuff. And so, of course, he says he's innocent, and it's crazy. So you don't know what's going to happen, so you don't want to go there. This isn't a teaching that you never sue anybody or you can't use the court system. That's not true. Uh, we see even the apostles. Paul, for example, he used the law to his, the, the civil laws to his advantage uh, when necessary in Philippi and getting him to Rome, different situations. So it's not that we live outside the law and, and never appeal to it. It's a warning to not let anger control you to the point where you want to use the laws of man to solve your problems. That's the idea. Uh, I shouldn't want to sue Ron so much that uh, I'm going to go outside the church or go out, you know, I should resolve that somehow uh, and, and not take him to court. This is expanded upon by Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says, what are you guys doing suing each other in open court? Unbelievers are going to think, why would I want to be a Christian? This is how Christians treat each other. Uh, you know, settle, uh, he didn't say that you didn't have issues. He said just settle your own issues. Settle them outside of court. And so this is nothing new. So, true anger management uh, is really to bring the f- fruit of the Spirit. Uh, I kind of wrote this down. I thought it was clever. Ready? I'm just warning you right now. It isn't to count to ten. It's to count the nine the nine being the number of fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5. Ooh, I thought, count, count on the nine. Uh, and so the fruit of the Spirit, which, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then it's described by these other eight attributes, but for my purposes, there's nine of them. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And so, obviously, the the we want to just live the Spirit-filled life, walk in the Spirit. Paul goes on to say, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with passions and desires. We live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So the solution to anger is the fruit of the Spirit, it's to walk in the Spirit, it's to kill the flesh, which, because Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead, Paul's not telling us how to do that, he's telling us it's been done. You, you step back, a lot of the Christian life is you step back and say, oh, I, this has already been done. I am able to bear this fruit because my flesh was killed with Jesus Christ. I just don't, I like my flesh. I need my flesh. I want my flesh. You know, I want to feel that. I, I, and, and that's really the problem. Spirit control is possible even over intermittent explosive disorder. Our problem is, here's another clever moment, we have intermittent spirit control, ISC. So... So anyway, I just just something to get you going. We immediately ask how to do this. One of the purposes of the Sermon on the Mount is to simply remind us of who we are. Jesus is describing the normal Christian life. We think he's describing something we have to achieve, you know, that we have to aspire to. He's saying, no, this is the normal life that you fall from. And, and you don't have to, you know claw and scratch to, to, to get there and live some, in a monastery. I mean, you just need to realize that this is what you are empowered to do. And as we fail to do it, we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. He cleanses us from our unrighteousness. And we keep trying again. Uh, Charles Swindoll had a book years ago. I think it, I don't know what it was about. I never read it, but I love the title. It was uh, Three Steps Forward, Two Steps Backward. And his idea was that you make progress, you fall back a little, you make more. But you're, as long as you're going forward, that's, that's the Christian life. We're being changed from glory to glory. 
and, and so the, the goal is to go on being filled with His Spirit, which as we've seen on Sunday morning, Paul says it's a command. Be being filled with the Spirit. Pray, uh, seek the Lord, read the Word, do all the things that a Christian does, uh, confess your sin, and uh, just let God develop more and more of His spiritual life within you. And take anger seriously, you know, in, uh, in, the, in the way that Jesus does, and, and don't gloss over it. Maybe we, there is a righteous anger, we almost never have that. Uh, we're almost, I mean, we are, well, I shouldn't say that. We are, as Christians, we, we are righteously angry about things in our society. We don't always handle it right, but I mean, there are things, there are sins that we get angry over. Uh, but a lot of our anger, our daily anger, even though we have, having a reason to be angry doesn't make it righteous, I guess is what I'm saying. There is a righteous anger against sin, against things that attack the holiness of God, the glory of God. Just being angry because somebody does something to you is not a righteous anger. Just having a reason doesn't make it right. So, uh, you know, we, we want to instead return kindness, peace, all those kinds of things. Amen? Let's practice that today.